This episode is brought to you by Murrinjai Water Drilling, a family-owned and operated team of fully licensed, insured and experienced drillers in the construction, mining and water services. They are licensed to drill and service in Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia. They ensure all water bores are installed correctly and professionally first time, every time. Learn more at murrinjaiwaterdrilling.com.au or find them on Facebook. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. In 2022, Olivia Thompson sold three cattle stations in the Northern Territory. Those three properties exceeded 1 million hectares combined. It's a world away from the 1,000 square metre block of land that was her first sale as a real estate agent some 20 years ago in the coastal town of Cairns. Olivia is a prime example of the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Beyond her beautiful smile and polished look that you'll see on those for sale signs is one of the grittiest, hardworking people I have had the fortune of meeting and calling my friend. In this episode... I sat down with Liv to learn about the incredibly diverse range of experiences that she has had so far, from growing up on a cattle station, winning a kickboxing title, training cutting horses in America, and having to learn to walk again. Liv, you first moved to a cattle station when you were just 10 days old. So your entire childhood was in the Northern Territory, in mm-hmm. the Outback. What was that like? Uh, it's a very free lifestyle. I think it's groomed me to be an independent person I am today. I don't really like being told what to do very often. <laughs> and yeah, you're, you're very independent, very resourceful when you're a kid. You don't wear shoes very often or brush your hair. I remember... um Towny kids always look so clean. I just didn't think I was such a grubby little little tomboy. <laughs> what was it like on the stations you grew up on? Were there many other people, any other children? Oh, not really. Sometimes there were. So when I, I was just thinking today, I have some really special memories of being at Limbanya, and that was during the time when there used to be, you know, like a large Indigenous camp. You know, there was a lot of Aboriginal stockmen that worked on the station and we had a, a big community there and I used to spend a lot of time hanging out with those kids or waiting for them to do something exciting like go catch a goanna or something and I'd hang around and yell out, I'm coming too. And yeah, probably probably more in that situation. When we lived at 
Phillip Creek, there was always a few kids and cousins and that that I went to school with, like did school of the air with there. Now, back then, that would have been school of the air on two-way radio. Is that right? Oh, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Sorry to give away <laughs> yeah, your age. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not been that long that school of the air has been off two-way radio. So, you could be any range of ages in, in that comment. So, yeah. No, it was, it was all by radio and it was for half an hour every day and, and only then, half an hour, only half an hour. And then, and then school was, well, depends on whether you rolled your sleeves up and got into it. And they used to always dangle the carrot of, you know, as soon as you finish, you can go and do a ball run with your dad or, you know, that you, if you really hooked in, you could get finished quickly. And so what were your parents' roles on the station? So they, they pretty much were always in management roles and uh, mum and dad had the lease on Phillip Creek for a while. So yeah, owner, owner managers, I guess. And what were they like as parents? I mean, they're still your parents now. Um, <laughs> that made it sound like they weren't here anymore, but for growing up, you know, were they, I guess, yeah, what was that like? Oh, fantastic. I guess we, I guess I had a really adventurous childhood and, and my parents were adventurous people. Like we, we moved so often because they were always on, onto the next adventure. They never became stale in a place. You know, we'd sort of be there for a couple of years and then we'd move on to the next place. And I, I don't even know where to call home because we lived in so many different places. And not just up here, we also lived down south. We lived around Wagga and Cootamundra and did the rodeo circuit. And so mum and dad were really involved in, you know, we, we were doing the APRA circuit. So they only take the top six juniors to the national finals. So we did rodeos all across New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, even drove to Darwin to not miss out on a rodeo. From New so, South Wales. From New South Wales. So that was super dedicated with whatever, whatever our interests were, you know, it was a, it was a family interest. Now you said it was a childhood full of excitement and adventure. Sure was. There is a particular adventure or somewhat exciting moment that I want to hear a bit more about. And it's kind of a brush with true crime. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fitzroy Station. I was, I think I was about eight years old then. And, uh, mum and dad were managing Fitzroy for the Hall family, which they owned, um, the Vic River pub at the time. And we were driving to the Vic River pub and I was trying to tell mum a story and she was really distracted. And I remember her saying, I'm just looking at that smoke over there. It looks like rubber burning. It's really strange, this this smoke coming from the trees. Anyway, we get to the Vic River pub and Francis Hoard said that um, this father and son had gone missing. They'd been fishing and they hadn't returned from the from their day and the wives were both there waiting for him. And that was when the, the German guy, the Kimberly killer, went on a bit of a rampage through – That was that was the first – Group that he got, and um, and then went on to Kununurra and proceeded to yeah massacre people at waterholes and yeah it was a bit traumatic. Yeah, so you guys were that close, and you had similar vehicles from memory. Is that right? So my mum had a very similar four wheel drive, and I remember our chopper pilot thought that my mum was driving across a paddock and sort of kind of swooped in on her like, "What are you doing?" And this guy had got the fright of his life. Like, I guess, I guess people think when they come to the outback that nobody's going to see them out there, but they kind of stand out because nobody's out there. It's like, who the hell's that? Yeah, that's a good point. And meanwhile, whenever you see someone out there, I think the first thing you'd probably think is like, you know, oh, especially in that region, a pig hunter or maybe someone going to go steal a beast, you know, go take their own their own cow and, and cut their own beef off and whatnot. Not here's a mass murderer, like just cruising around. That's, that's right. And it was, I guess, I mean, the, I don't know of any 
station homesteads that you can really lock. Like it's <laughs> I don't of, actually know if they even have locks on the like Actually, no. we probably shouldn't be saying that. Like, if anyone's listening, yeah, they're all locked. And honestly, even if they weren't, good luck getting past the guard dogs. Well, so. that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's um. Imagine if you guys had, yeah, I guess, yeah, we were just go- following it on the news, uh, just on the radio, and it was um, yeah, it was it was pretty scary to think that. Yeah, mum and dad seem very calm about it, but when I think about it now, I wonder, I wonder how they really were feeling at the time, and how you would be or I would be if it was. Well, us, I had like- a plan. I had I had a slug gun, and I was going to hide in the shoebox. <laughs> What's the shoebox? <laughs> well, I was just small enough to fit in it. So I was like, well, that's where I'll hide. Oh, like a chest? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like that was my stakeout. Oh, when you said shoebox, I thought like a little cardboard shoebox that just has oh, one pair no, of shoes I should in say it. like a boot box. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I guess that kind of um, to have a plan to do that makes you sound like you're a bit sassy, a bit. A bit, bit of fierce. a survivor. I guess yeah. you are a bit of a survivor when you're a bush kid. Yeah. Which I guess is no surprise. Now I'm starting to connect the dots up. We've had so many conversations over the past few months and I feel like I've learned like little bits and pieces about your life and not in a sequential order. So now as I hear more bits, I'm kind of piecing it all together and thinking about little eight year old Liv being prepared to go get a slug gun and hide in a box to stake out a mass murderer and take him down. Uh, it's no surprise that you went on to do a lot of boxing and kicks, kickboxing. Yeah, I guess the way that all came about, I had a friend who was really into martial arts and this was when we were living in Achuca in Victoria and went along and absolutely loved it and then couldn't go back in again because I was so nervous. I'd, I sort of kept going back and forth and I'd go and then I wouldn't go back for a bit and then my friend ran a self-defence class and I got right into it and um, and just never looked back. And then we moved to Darwin, as we do. We always do a move from one end of the country to the other and moved to Darwin and trained with a guy named Kyle Borden who had fitness works in, in Nightcliff. And he was a bit of an extreme like coach. And, um, like I, I joined their fight team. I, I really loved sparring and really loved competing. And he would train us six days a week. And he used to call me Kmart special because my chin used to always stick out. And it almost got to the point where he was going to take my, um, my hand to my chin so that I'd block up properly. And so then I got into boxing from there. And yeah, just loved it. I spent probably a good decade just spending my afternoons every, every afternoon after work, I'd go to the gym. So how did you, how old were you when this all started? Oh, probably 17 and probably stopped in my late twenties. And so you, I just, and was this the guy that you went and trained with and he wasn't supposed to be, you walked into the wrong gym? Is that that story? Yes. Yeah. So I'm really bad with directions. Anyone that knows me still am. And, um, he, and, uh, went and bought some boxing gloves and the guy that was selling the gloves explained where to go and said, just around the corners of the gym, don't go there. So that's exactly where I went. But I think it was fate. Like he was, he was awesome. Yeah. So I went to the wrong gym and uh, that's right. I was still in martial arts mode and I wore my, um, my brown singlet, which means that you're almost a, a black singlet. And um, I was quite proud of that. And the, the previous classes I'd been to had a, a hierarchy of where you stood. So that was one of the first questions I asked is is where I where I needed to stand. And he said, we don't do that here. I don't think he was a fan of me for quite a few months. And my very first session, my dad came as well. I had a 12-year-old beat the crap out of me in sparring. And it was, I just realized how bad my my sparring was. 
And my dad said afterwards, he said, I nearly stood up and said something. And I said, well, if you did, you would never, ever be able to come again. I've just got to learn how to be a better fighter. I just didn't realize I was so bad. Kyle was amazing, like one of the biggest influences of my life. I just, I love that your response to that wasn't like, I don't know, kind of to shift the blame or be like, oh, that was an unfair fight or I don't know, some make up some kind of excuse. No, they you were just amazing. Co- you they just topped it on the chin and were like, I need to be better. I wanted to be like them. I thought they were amazing. And by them, you mean the 12 year olds? Yeah, just that he used to have a class that of around 50 people would turn up nearly every night, but a lot of, yeah, young people that were very skilled fighters kickboxing so you did it oh sorry kickboxing and boxing so the two of them yeah so I well as I mentioned Kyle nicknamed me Kmart special with yeah, my what is chin that, what oh because my my chin used to stick out so as what a, does that have to do as with a Kmart though it's just a it's a special it's like everybody notices it and so I needed to learn to tuck my chin so that you know I could defend myself a lot better so I was um wouldn't say I was a great boxer but I was a gritty boxer and I I loved it and I had a lot of lot of try about me so so my defense was just to hook in and he said you can't just rely on that one day you're going to come up against somebody who's bigger and stronger and you're going to have absolutely no defense so that's where the Kmart special like the chin sticking out came from and I took up boxing to get better with my hands tell me about some of your more memorable fights well the the last fight I had so I'd won the NT kickboxing title in 98 and then I kept training up for all these boxing matches or boxing or kickboxing matches and I don't I feel like nobody really nowhere really trained like Kyle where it was like sprints on Sunday afternoon and you know an hour and a half training sessions like four nights a week and it was yeah it was six nights of training it was full on so these people that were lining up for a fight we'd pull out because they had a cold or some really lame excuse and I'm like I'm working my butt off I could not be any fitter and I want to keep practicing my skills so I entered in um a tough man competition because there was meant to be a heap of women going in it which Kyle wasn't very impressed because he said it's it's a thugs match there's no weight divisions it's you know whoever they match you up with um obviously women fighting women and men fighting men and, um, well, you know how he said that, you know, that one day that you're going to come up against somebody and have no defense because you, you don't cover up properly. That was that day. This girl was about 20 kilos heavier than me and just really like drilled me. And I sat down after the first round and I just remember looking at this huge crowd. I couldn't really hear what Kyle was saying. And, but he was talking like strategy. And I was thinking, is he serious? Like he thinks that. I'm going to keep going. And I said, Kyle, did you, did you see what happened? He goes, get your head right. You need to start moving. And I can't even remember what else he said, but I just remember thinking, wow, if Kyle thinks that I can win this, I've got this. And there was a point where it was almost like I had nothing to lose. She almost sort of got me through the ropes and then I've got up. And I just remember doing this sort of laugh to myself, like, this is crazy. It's so out of control wasn't a pretty match at all. She wasn't a boxer. She was more like a straight fighter. So you couldn't find any rhythm. It was just straight out fighting. And anyway, I turned it around and I ended up winning it. It was, yeah, unbelievable. And did you say that was the last fight you did? 
That was the last competition I went in. How come? And well, I I went across. I, well, I I moved to the states and did all that kind of stuff. But um, but that was that was sort of the last time. Not long after that was the last time I really saw Kyle, until like years later. Which yeah, which will come up later on in the episode. Yeah. Um, I just your attitude. I guess is the one thing that's so constant through. I mean, we've only been talking for about fifteen minutes, but oh, I'm delusionally positive at times. Yeah, <laughs> and re- like, and so much um, resilience and grit, as you said. Like you're quite gritty. So, what else? I guess when you're fighting, uh, did you ever get to go up against that twelve year old again? The one that kicked you? Oh uh, no, that was that was that was just training. But training used to be like a competition. And the thing I loved about Kyle's class is that if there was such a diverse range of people there and he used to make everyone shake hands at the end of the class and there was always like a little life lesson like you know that we've got to respect that everybody goes to school or has to go to work the next day or it was all about respecting each other and Kyle's favorite saying like he used to before we competed we used to have to go and shake our opponent's hand and he used to always say loudest person in the room's the weakest and the it's the quiet ones you have to watch out for and it's true he's like you be the nicest person there and it kind of stayed with me forever like it's you don't have to have that bravado to to kick butt (laughs) and there's nothing better than than being able to like handle yourself in a match and then sound like a lady on the microphone and not sound like you're trying to be one of the boys like I was like one of the only females in that team and I never wanted to be one of the boys. I just wanted to do my thing. Boxing feels really different to other activities, I guess, I would associate with people in the outback. Um, you mentioned that you were into horses and that you guys went and did quite a lot of rodeo. How did boxing fit into your life? You know, like, and this was all you're living in Darwin, is that right? Yeah, did pretty you- much. And I, I did I, I did the local circuit up here with my rodeoing as well. So like you were we boxing to- and rodeoing at the same yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. I was into both. Um, look, they're very different, different people that go to, to both. But I guess that's me as well. Like I, I'm, I'm a country girl at heart, but I think a lot of people mistake me for being a city girl because, you know, I always dress like a little bush kid as a kid. I like to dress up as an adult. And, um, yeah, I guess you don't have to sort of fit a certain prototype to be a boxer or a cowgirl or be out bush or a real estate agent. This is true. You mentioned that you went to America not long after that fight, the one you just told us about, the fight that you won, which is always yeah. good to end on a high note, I guess. <laughs> um, what brought you to the States? Uh, well, somebody said um, a good rider like me would earn 70000 a year working for a cutting horse trainer. And I think they were just trying to make me feel good. Um so I, you know, at twenty, I just thought, well, yeah, I want to earn seventy thousand a year, and I just finished doing two years as a um, a PA for a real estate agent, and go and got my license. And I thought, I don't want to be a yuppie real estate agent. Like, I do want to be a horse trainer, and I do want to earn seventy thousand a year. And I went over there, and it was two hundred dollars a week, and a good rider is a dime a dozen. <laughs> so, like, big fish, small pond in Australia. In America, well, not small- even in Australia. I think I was just—I I went to a clinic, and and it was probably just you know that that you know that typical someone's come back from the states and they were saying how fantastic it is and sort of maybe exaggerating how great it is. And 
which they weren't because, I mean, I loved it. I spent two years over there. I earned bugger all money, but I learned how to save and I worked massive hours, but I also got to travel a lot as well. So where did you go? Initially, I went and worked for Lindy Birch in Weatherford, Texas. Had a beautiful ranch. It was called 80 Ranch just outside of Weatherford. And um, I did a couple of months with her and then decided to move on. <laughs> and then I got a job with um, Greg Welch. Lindy's Ranch was this amazing ranch where, you know, if you're in the arena, it's a little bit hot, you just press a button and the sides come up and everything was beautiful. And someone said about going to Greg Welch, go to work for Greg Welch, and he was the second highest money earner in the world at that time. And I thought, wow, I wonder what his ranch is going to be like. Well, it was completely different. <laughs> it was, um, it was, uh, you know, they were just really ranchy people and the focus was on their training and their horses. They used their horses to bring in, their, their good show horses to bring in cattle. Nothing was wrapped up in cotton wool. And it was, um, it was an amazing experience so much that I was only meant to spend three months there and I went back and spent another year and a half there. How do you go about getting a job with someone who is currently the second highest earner in that sport? I think it was just by chance. Yeah, it was just, I was just really lucky. And look, it wasn't, it, it, it probably wasn't the most desirable place to go because it was nothing flash. Like it was, there was definitely no indoor arena. It was, if it was like snowing, you were just riding out in the snow, like the occasional times that it did. And there were horse stalls, horse stalls that you couldn't put any horses in because those ones had, you know, weren't functionable anymore or yeah. So it wasn't, um, and it was hard work. I mean, and our trailers, some like the trailer that we had, um, pretty much everything was fixed on it with baling wire over there. They use wire on their, on their hay. So that's what was fixed, used to fix everything. So. It wasn't it wasn't a glamorous place to work, but just an incredible horseman. Uh, well, okay, so working for Greg, like, this is what I mean, like it's not a glamorous place to work. Um, I remember he sent us out to West Texas and we were only in our early 20s, obviously, um, and I worked with an English girl, Sarah, and he gave us some money to buy food on the way out there and we we're going out to his dad, Buster Welch's ranch. And um, taking all the two-year-olds out there. Well, the trailer that we took hadn't been used for a while. And I think we got 40 mile down the road and we had to spend all our money, all our food money on tires. So we got out to the ranch and we just had chocolate chip cookies for dinner. And then that's what what we had for breakfast. And I remember saying, oh, just sick of working for Greg Welch and always being broke. And then we've gone to, we've gone up to Buster's Lodge to get instructions on what we needed to do with these horses. And he is just the most loveliest per- person I've ever come across. Um, he just, everybody's of interest to him. He's just, he makes everybody feel equal and everybody feel welcome. And he had this famous writer there at the time. And he said, have you girls had breakfast? And they're cooking bacon and eggs. So, of course, we we're like, no. <laughs> and um, he invited us in and we just had the most loveliest morning. We went and moved cattle on all these young horses and it was just one of the best days of my life. I remember Buster would have been in his early 70s then. Shayla had not long had a stroke and she was already back riding and they're just really resilient people. And Buster's gone, right, girls, let's feed them some hills and just galloped off on this two-year-old up the hills and we followed behind and it was just a, a brilliant day. 
When you say we, were you traveling with another Australian or did you meet up with Americans over there? I mean, did you go over on your own or with someone else? No, I went over on my own, um, but I was working with um, a lady named Sarah who was from England. Yeah, so he had the Aussie and the English girl working for him. So I guess at least it was an adventure for both of us. You were kind of both fish out of water in a sense because you're both in a foreign country. What was that like? I know growing up on a cattle station or in remote parts of Australia, there is a lot of isolation and, and often whether it's geographical or social because you're often like the only child or there's just not many people in general. What was it? Did that, I guess, set you up to handle going over to the States? Yeah, I guess I, well, I guess I was just excited to be over there. And, and I guess you sort of think, well, they speak English. It's going to be the same as here, but it was just such a cultural shock. Like, well, first of all, they couldn't understand me. And I was basically in Chinatown for Aussies being in Weatherford. Every, every second loper was an Aussie. Um, but yeah, I had to change the way I spoke a little bit so that they could understand me. It was great, great doing that with, with Sarah because she was from England. And we probably, our countries probably had a bit more similarity than what, you know, America and Australia had. Yeah. And, you know, just even, even the food, like I remember I was cooking a roast and they were laughing that we like cooked in the oven or that we'd put milk in our coffee. And it's like, well, where do you think half and half comes from? Or roast, like roasting, not like cooking it, like not boiling it sort of thing. Which you probably know all about. <laughs> yeah, that what you're saying about the culture shock. I remember when I moved to the States, I was, yeah, you think, oh, same movie, same TV, like you'll be fine. No. Or you go no. to the supermarket and you're like, I where's even... the real food? Or they go, like the bread. I was like, it's like potato bread or this bread or like I, even sourdough was like a foreign concept yeah, back yeah. then. I was like, I don't even know what to buy. Like, where do I find the cheese that is an orange? <laughs> or the, that's, yeah, bright orange or or the bread that lasts for a month in the cupboard without going moldy. Oh, yeah, that's it's, weird. Yeah. Mm. So what was, I guess, as you were getting into your time in the States, what was the plan? Just there for a good time uh, I and guess, make it up as you go? Or? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I was interested in training. Uh, maybe I just really wanted to just travel. Like I just – we we travelled a lot. I mean, you were on the road more more than you're at home and that's all exciting at first, but I just remember getting to the point where I'd get to a place and just immediately unpack my bag to try and, you know, and put things in drawers to make it home while we were there because we'd often be at a place for – you know, a week or two weeks and then you're off to the next place and you you were always staying in hotels. I was pretty lucky. Greg got me to um, to show some horses, look very amateur level and just, um, you know, and I got to work some two-year-olds at home. But I think I realised like you, you work really long hours and you've got to have a real love for it. And as much as I love horses and I love that scene, my passion isn't that strong for it. So I think once the adventure was over, I I did a few more rodeos when I got home and that was that was sort of the end of my riding really. Really? So you yeah. don't really ride these days anymore? Not a lot. Mum and Dad were um they were running the Jindabyne Equestrian Resort for a little while and that's a beautiful arena to ride in. So and like I'd go and have a holiday there and I'd jump on a barrel race horse or work some cattle or do something like that. But I just I just didn't really keep going with it. So what spurred the decision to come back to Australia? 
You just run out of I a think visa? I just, well, part, partly that. Um, I mean, there was always a way around it back then. It seemed a bit easier, you know, before 9-11. Um, I think I just, my mum came over to visit, that's right, and that made me homesick. I just, and I thought, I just, I'm just going to go home for a month. And, yeah, I just never went back after that. So you're, you've been in the States working with horses. Before that, you said you had done a couple of years as a real estate PA. You're also like this boss, you know, kick fighting, kickboxing, <laughs> boxing, fighting girl. When you get back to home soil, where do you, where do you, I guess, like point? What do you think is coming next Okay, so I I went back. So mum, at that point, mum and dad had moved. They were living in a place called not, near Rochester. I don't even Victoria. know. Oh, okay, I was like, yeah, that word means nothing to me. Yeah, I went back there. I worked in a motorbike shop for a couple of years. I just wanted to do something a bit more exciting with my life. And, I, you know, as much as I said earlier on, I don't want to be a yuppie real estate agent. I'm going to be a horse trainer. I thought maybe if I'm going to work hard, I want to get paid well. And I had a friend that was um, working for a developer in Cairns and gave him a call and he said, oh, I'm looking for an offsite. Why don't you come up? And it was middle of winter in Victoria, so that's a really easy decision to go to Cairns. Yeah, so th- oh, that was I was about 23 then and went and worked for, for the Gasparans that had a, a couple of different – oh, no, they had three developments happening in Cairns at the time. So that's where your real estate career like really began? That's when it really kicked off. I pretty much was like working as an offsider to Kingsley and then he went away. And um, I remember my first deal, I had an Indian doctor I was showing around. It was really lovely. And then we got back to the office. I'd say he's really coming down heavy on me about this block. And I remember the figure, it was like 242000 And I've called Frank and I was a little bit intimidated because I was, yeah, like I said, 23. And I said, um, Frank, um, there's a gentleman here and he'd like to know if we would negotiate on this block. He goes, Olivia, we don't negotiate. Play the effing game and hung up on me. <laughs> so that was my first sale with the Gasparans. <laughs> so I, I don't know what came over me. I said, can you go to 240? Which I would never do that now for anyone that's listening, but I just, I think I just panicked and went, I don't want to lose this buyer. And then I called the other buyer, the other, the other brother back to say, what do you think? And he said, yep, sign him up. And then he came in and he said, Frank was going to tell you to drop another 10 grand. So that's good. And then it just went from there. I did 15 years of um, real estate in Cairns, 15 or more. I can't remember. I worked for some really great agencies there before coming back to, or coming over to Catherine. This whole time that you're living and working in Cairns in real estate, were you involved in anything kind of outback or horsey or rodeo in any capacity? No, not really. Only, like I said, if I went to visit mum and dad, because mum, mum will always have horses. She loves it. Oh, and actually mum and dad were at Neutral Junction at that point. I remember going out and helping muster. Actually, I had a really, had a really great day. I guess like I'd, I'd gone off and done my stuff in the States and worked with some, you know, really nice cutting horses and really great trainers. And then um, I guess you sort of, you feel like you get a bit big for your boots, like mum and dad don't tell me how to do things anymore. And I was at neutral and they were talking about moving these cattle and dad didn't like the way it was being planned. And he said, I'm sending your mother out. And I'm like, what's mum going to do? And I guess you just, you know, mum's always mum. 
Anyway, so mum came out and she was amazing. Like we had um, some Aboriginal stockmen and a couple other people helping and she had everyone moving really quietly. These cattle that used to run off all the time, she just put them through the yards beautifully. And I get home that afternoon, I said to dad, mum's a really good Jillaroo. And he goes, who are you calling a Jillaroo? And he put his arm around and he said, this is a head stockman here. <laughs> so that was, so I still had a bit of like my, um, you know, I still got to get a bit of a taste of like the bush or, you know, horses and that kind of thing just through wherever mum and dad were. What I guess I'm just imagining if I were in your shoes and I didn't even grow up on a station, but sometimes like our experiences in this part of the world or, or and I guess your formative years and the experiences you have can be so closely tied to your identity. So, you know, being outback or rodeo or horsey, like that can be like for me, Absolutely. even though I grew up in like suburbia but I rode horses, like being a horse person or um how you dress somehow or- tied to agriculture or the yeah. outback is like very much tied to my identity. So I just wonder and so wherever I've gone in my life and moved, I've tried to keep some sort of connection to it. Even when I spent a little bit of time living in Canberra, which is like I didn't really get to do anything on the ground there, but I was working for the Cattle Council and the Live Export Council, so I was still involved in industry somehow. When you're in Cairns and you're in real estate um, and you're selling like development blocks and apartments and houses and all that kind of stuff, there's no connection there at all. So how did that – did you feel like – it sounds like you were fine with it. Like you're quite flexible. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I've always, I've always been a person that I guess I've had so much change in my life. Like I said, we move so much. I think I was talking to some friends about it yesterday. I think I went to like six or seven different high schools. So I'd gone from being bush kid, hardly ever going to normal school, to then going to different boarding schools, or you know, we were moving all the time. So. It probably made me a really versatile person in that sense. So I'd, I've never felt like I needed to dress a certain way or be a certain way or, you know, there's that, you know, boxing, you've got to be tough or you've got to, you know, you're a cowgirl, you've got to be a certain way. Or I've just, I've never felt like I've needed to project that. I've just got interests in lots of different things. I mean, I've gone from boxing to dancing and things like that or you know, I was really into learning Spanish for a while. Like I've just had so many different interests. It's, it's just, it's, I guess it's just a phase. It sounds like you're so grounded in who you are that it, like I could pick you up and put you on the moon and you'd find a way to be happy there and make a go of it. Like you don't Well, I love to talk. So as long as there's other people there. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm interested in people. I'm interested in it doesn't matter, you know, what, what walk of life they come from. I, I don't feel like they need to be my type of people. I'm just interested in people's stories and how people live and, you know, just learning about different cultures and different people. I just think, yeah, it's really cool that you have had like all these other experiences and that you haven't necessarily had to have some kind of tie or connection back to your upbringing that time, whereas for other people, myself included, like, I, f- I still feel the need to have some kind of connection there. Otherwise I get a bit lost. Like, yeah. Um, oh, I mean, I do. I mean, I love being back here. I love being back in the territory. I mean, there's no place like home. And I remember, um, I, oh, I was going to say, I remember when I had my, my tumor experience and coming back to the territory and it was, um, it was May. So it was pretty dry and, um, there was a, 
there was a shower and there's just no smell like rain on the desert. And yeah, like I say, there's no place like home. So I just love like what I'm doing now and going out to different places I go to. And I'm genuinely interested in, in the operation and I'm interested in growing things and I'm interested in irrigation and, and things like that. It's, um, yeah. So I guess it, I have kind of come back to my roots in a sense. You have. You're stealing my closing of the, of the episode. Gosh, Liv. <laughs> but you did segue nicely into the next kind of topic that I wanted to move into. And that was this experience you've had, which we actually haven't discussed before. You mentioned it very briefly in passing. I think the second time we met, um, you said something about, oh, something, something. And I had to learn to walk again and then kept going like it was nothing. And I'm there going, what the heck? And yeah, it's, it's come up in passing, but you've agreed to kind of tell the story on the podcast. So yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remove it from a, you know, a normal story I'd talk about. I'm trying not to make it a big part of my life anymore. I mean, it was a really important part of my life and, and a really, um, enlightening journey, I guess, to go on. But I just, I just don't want to keep living it. So that's probably why I'd, I'd probably brushed over it. But yeah, for years I had, I had back pain and nobody could give me any answers on it. And it turns out by the time they found it, I had like an inch long tumor in my spinal cord. And it was, um, I had to actually demand to get an MRI. That's how bad it got. And it was only because my osteopath said, you know, you need to insist on this. Something's going wrong and you need to get this looked at properly. And she said, they're going to try and talk you out of it, but insist on getting an MRI. And I'm so glad I did. And they found it. So when did the back pain start? Oh, like 10 years earlier. Just, and people were like, oh, maybe you've got a bulge disc. Oh, um, someone said that I had two like renal stones at once, which is extremely unlikely. It was just, I'd go through phases where I get like these electric shocks in my lower back. And because the focus was always on my lower back, they never really looked at my upper back. Oh. And that's where the tumor was because that's those nerves control your legs. So by the time they found it, I was living in Tasmania at the time and they just said, you need to get this out immediately. Otherwise you're not going to be able to walk anymore. You're not going to be able to use, you know, your bottom part of your, your body. How old were you at the time? I was, I think, God. I love, 30, I said at the start 30, of the 36, 37, I think. Okay. Well, I did say yeah. at the start of this episode that I wasn't going to disclose your age, but for all we know, that <laughs> happened last week. So, okay. You yeah. I think, around, I think, yeah, I'm thinking I was like 30, 36, 37 at the time. Okay. So when the pain first started, were you still fighting? No, no, I hadn't done boxing for years. Okay. No, I was, I was living in Tassie, completely different life again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And selling so, real estate there and just, yeah, just kept having this problem with my back. Do you just think you had like bad posture or something? Like if it well, wasn't, if it wasn't a potential fighting injury or horse They thought it was actually, they, they, the doctor thought it was like a bulge disc. So he was kind of happy to tell me like when he actually said there's something going on, but you also do have a bulge disc. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it was pretty serious and they, um, I, I, I think it was diagnosed on a Saturday and they took it out by Tuesday and my amazing family, like my two sisters and my parents and like my parents were in the territory. One sister was like, had a toddler and was living, she lives in the snowy mountains. Another sister was in South Australia. They all just flew over and got there at the same time. 
or my younger sister with a toddler got there um, a day earlier. We quickly did some Christmas shopping. Anyone who knows me knows I love buying presents for people. So needed to get that done on the Monday and then have my operation on Tuesday. And so you had the operation in Tassie? Had the operation in Tassie. And it was good having my little sister there because she was really listening, listening acutely. Whereas I was, I'm, I'm always a bit delusionally positive. It's got to go the way I want it to go. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't care what they say. Of course, I'm going to be able to walk again. And then when I woke up, I've lifted, gone to lift my legs and they just were completely out of control. I had no control over my legs whatsoever. And it took about a month to be able to sort of get out of a wheelchair even. So this has all happened within, I mean, like you said, the pain had been coming and going over 10 years, but when it's all come to a head, it's over a matter of days. Like if you had the operation on, if you kind of find out on a Saturday, have the operation on a Tuesday. So that previous Tuesday, you were just like, la, 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 you know, yes, sore back, but you know, none yeah, of this. Like, none of oh, this- so relieved. We found out what it is. We'll get it fixed up and I'll be back at work. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> Even when I was coming. in hospital, I was still selling properties to the point where my um my mum ended up she was she came to Tassie for like for a few weeks and she would take my phone so that I couldn't make any work calls because I just needed something to keep me stimulated and feel like I was a part of life still. Well there's not really any time to process it either, I guess, between a Saturday and a Tuesday. Like that's not a lot I- of time to be like like this is what's going to happen. I think that's how I dealt with it. I just threw myself into work and then avoidance, <laughs> avoidance, and then I um, I then so I couldn't even use a walking frame because that's how bad my balance was when I got to the point where I could sort of they they put me on this gutter frame that helped me onto that, and it sort of sits under your arms and you kind of paddle your way around. And remember when I was talking about my kickboxing trainer. Kyle, who was this great inspiration in my life. Here I am in a wheelchair in Royal Hobart Hospital and Kyle decides that he no longer wants to be a fitness instructor because it's it's too materialistic and wanted to become a nurse in, in his 50s and help people in a more fulfilling way. And he was looking after someone in the room right next door to me. And the last time I'd seen him was 17 years earlier in Darwin. Unbelievable. I just, when I saw him, I almost burst into tears. I just was like, do you know what you mean to me? And I called mum and dad and they got a bit choked up on the phone. And they just said, if anyone was going to be there, it just had to be Kyle. Did you get to see him more than once? Yeah, he'd pop in and see me. And he went straight into coaching mode. Like he was like, right, I've just paced this ward out and it's 13 laps to do a kilometre. You got to do 13 laps every day. So I was like, I'm going to do 26 laps every day. And every and I did treat it just like training. I just was like, any time I like had a bit of time, I'm like, right, back out there again. What is it like? I guess waking up, oh, that moment when you realised you couldn't walk, like that's got to be a, and as, as particularly as well, it's not like you were in a big accident and something, or that when you look down, you can see your legs in a cast or you, you know, something's broken. Like it's. It's um it it it's certainly a process. Um, I it it was a slow thing for me to process because I am just such a determined person. I just I, it took me a long time to accept that that I it was going to be a slow recovery, and um I I still sort of cringe at saying that because I feel like it's kind of a quit attitude. Like you know it'll take time. I'm like don't let it take time. <laughs> um, but I yeah it it was completely life changing and and. I um 
yeah, I went I went home after oh, a bit after a month because I just I just sort of wanted to get back into work again, avoidance to just try and make my life normal. And then I, I got to the point where I realized I wasn't going to be able to do that. I went to South Australia and I found this amazing physiotherapist who just went above and beyond. Leah had a really strong interest in proprioception um, and neurological recovery. And um, she organized for me to see her lecturer in the, you know, uni essay, I think it was. And, um, and, and, met some just amazing people along the way, particularly her, who just completely changed everything for me and went above and beyond to to help me get better. What was that word you said? Pro- proprio Proprioception. What's so that? I still have that. What is Nobody that? be scared when they drive with me. I've learned how to use my right foot, <laughs> but oh, I, like- I still, I can feel it. I just can't feel where it is. Okay. So you can, you can't, you can feel it, but you don't know where it is. So it's like, is that like a kind of disconnection between well, that's like- the, yeah and, and it look I think this is one amazing thing I've learned from this journey is I remember three months into my rehab the um, neurologist said I was doing remarkably well because I was on a walking stick and I felt terrible about the way I was walking I thought I was going to be completely better in three months just had no idea how long it was going to take I feel like a lot of the talk that they give you, and it's with good intention, but it's a lot of it's about protecting their backsides and also managing your expectations, but you just can't listen to it. And and I, I think I mentioned before, I used to do a lot of dancing and that really helped me with my recovery. I did a lot of salsa dancing. And the, the lady even said, like, she said I was walking quite quickly and she thought that was, she said the only other person she'd seen do that was a, also a dancer. And I think because when you dance, you have to visualize what you're doing before you do it. And I've just pushed myself and pushed myself for years. And I, I'm going to get to the point where I can run again and not have any limp at all. How long was the recovery period before you were able to walk on your own? Oh, really only about three months, but really badly. Like I was, I had a walking stick. I mean, even when I went back to Cairns about, that was, that was the end of 2015. I had my operation and 2016, I moved back to Cairns. Kev Toomey gave me my first job back in real estate and I still had a walking stick then, which I can't even believe he employed me. <laughs> How, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the, to cope with, that, you know, not being able to do what you used to do or to the level that you used to be able to do it. And by that, I mean walking or getting around, being functional. But you're also like a young woman in your 30s, you know, and oh, you've got it. And a walking stick is so strongly associated mm-hmm. with elderly people. Um, how, how, I guess, how does that play in your mind? And, you know, yeah, it does. It absolutely erodes your self-esteem. You just think, how embarrassing. I'm like, I'm like soiled goods, like – you do feel, yeah, like you don't, well, I I haven't even been able to wear high heels in years, like things like that, things that make you feel like a woman and, yeah, definitely, definitely really eroded. It was something I had to work on a lot in finding, you know, people that were, and, and, and people would make jokes about it all the time and they think it's funny and I get it because sometimes it's easy to make a joke in an awkward situation but you still go, yep, I'm like, you know, like an old woman. When did you get to, like, give back the walking stick? Well, I lost it. I don't even remember where I put it. <laughs> oh, really? So I had my um, 
I had my first 2017, I started working for Kev. Kev used to be like my main competitor um, in the suburb I sold in Cairns for like a good decade. I just thought he's another amazing human being. He was the first person to give me a job when I, here I am feeling like an old woman, not feeling fantastic about myself and just, you know, those people that just really know how to lift people. He was, he's in the same category as my old kickboxing coach and he just he just took me to a whole new level my first year I had my walking stick I still was wobbly and then I got right into exercising really got on top of my walking and then end of 2018 he had a staff of about 18 agents and I ended up getting salesperson of the year I just just smashed it but a lot of it was his support you sure it's because you weren't like walking around and kind of bashing them all with your walking stick like so they were falling over and not able to do their jobs? Oh, that's true, yeah, so they couldn't compete. Yeah. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. No. <laughs> work it, Maybe work that's it. where I lost it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe it was confiscated off you so you could stop hitting people. <laughs> oh. Now, you're still in real estate today and like you mentioned earlier, you've sort of come full circle in that you're back home, you're in the territory, even though you yeah, said you don't right know – where home is specifically, I guess, for you. It's, the territory's it's home. the territory, not necessarily a town or a station. It's just this whole big chunk of land. I've just as much love for the desert as I do for the top end. Yeah. No, I do. Um, I do miss Alice Springs a fair bit. And that Tennant Creek mm-hmm. area, I love that country. It is so beautiful. You started off, you, you, meant, you told us a story of when you sold your first, was it a house or a block of land in that development? What was it? That you sold to the uh, in Park Ridge in in Cairns, yeah, for the Italians, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my, my that would have been yeah my first sale in real estate, yeah. And so, what was it that you sold? Sorry, oh, it was just a block of land. Okay, so how big a block of land do you reckon we're talking? Oh, uh, it wasn't. A, it was only a, probably I think it was probably a thousand square meters, if that. But it was it was this beautiful spot, sort of overlooking the city, totally mm. different to what I'm selling now. Well, I was just thinking though, your first sale was, let's say, about a thousand square meters. Recently, you've sold actually three cattle stations, but I want to talk about the first one, which you said is Neutral Junction. And you mentioned that name earlier in the episode because your parents were there at some point as they well. They were. My dad did the, um, the irrigation project out there. And I think they were there for maybe five years. How, like, just there's just so many things going on there. Like talk about coming full circle, but then also the the growth and the trajectory in your in your real estate career from selling a thousand square meters to how big was Neutral Junction? Neutral Junction is around four and a half thousand square kilometers, or a little bit over. Really special place. Not not just because it was a place I used to visit and my parents managed, but I mean it was it was special with the project that Dad had done out there with irrigation, but. The Frith family, like we have a, a beautiful relationship with them as a family and there's a lot of loyalty between us all and, and um, it was really, really special to, to work with them. And it's it's just a result that I could walk away from feeling super proud, like I just gave it absolutely everything. Like there was a month where I was I was pretty much going there once a week and it's a good eight-hour drive there. So I was trying to do it close to the weekend so I could work out there on the weekend and come back and not let my town people down during the week. I was just so exhausted. <laughs> What's it like selling a cattle station compared to a smaller property or, you know, what you did for many years in Cairns, which was, you know, houses and apartments? Well, I mean, I guess the the thing that 
selling a pretty house in Cairns and selling a cattle station, I guess you, you are dealing with different buyers, but people are people and it's all about dealing with people. And I've had 20 odd years of selling property. So it's, it's understanding, it's understanding what everybody wants out of the situation is probably the, the connecting part of that. The, yes, it, it's a different process. And, and luckily I, I, I was working on the North Star pastoral portfolio selling Maryfield and Limbunya. And that, that process actually started before Neutral Junction. And I worked with some absolutely amazing people during that process and took a lot of those sort of strategies and ideas, you know, to the, the Neutral Junction sale. And I, I think it just, it worked brilliantly. We were all really happy with the result. So you sold Neutral Junction, which your parents managed for five years when you were an adult living in Queensland. But you also sold Merrifield and Limpania and you actually lived on Limpania for a while as a child. Yeah, I did. I did. So there was that special tie, amazing special tie. Like it's, um, it's amazing. Like I must be a, a, you know, nostalgia must really come through this aroma of, um, of, of things for me because even going out to Limpania, just landing out there, I was like, yep, it smells just like I remember. <laughs> and. It's still, I guess, because it's quite remote, it's over near the WA border. Um, it, it just, yeah, it brought back a lot of memories and even going to Black Springs, like that's not the same. And I remember walking out of the kitchen, that's still pretty much the same as what it was in the eighties and looking out going, where's that mulberry tree? Ah, oh, there it is. It's over near the chook pen where Ben and Lincoln Hoare locked me in the chook pen when I was about five. And, you know, um, just going back to our old house and, Oh, the other thing was seeing the um the, the Aboriginal camp. Like that was just so bizarre to see that empty because it was such a village and such a vibrant place in the eighties. I know you said that I guess at the core of it, you know, real estate is real estate and it's about dealing with people and understanding what they want and, and how to get best outcome for everyone. But man, it's gotta be so different selling a station to selling a house in town or a rural block. I mean, just the size of things. I know in WA when you, when stations are sold, like it has to have a ministerial approval. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I guess it depends thing. if you're selling something freehold versus, versus, um, crown Just land. Stories. Yeah. So is that, I mean, you must have had one heck of a learning curve. Oh, absolutely. Like there's a lot of complexity with selling a, a, a cattle station. Um, but it's, it's all about the people that you work with. I've got some great people that, you know, that, um, that have helped through these processes, legal people. And, and, and I guess it's like I said, I, I worked with some fantastic people on the North Star pastoral portfolio, uh, on the North Star pastoral portfolio. And, you know, there, there's a really strong qualifying process for people to go through before they go onto a property. And there's, there's a, a high level of confidentiality on, on, on those people that are, that are making, um, NBIOs on properties. And, you know, we, we want them to show their cards before they even qualify to have an inspection. And the, the process just works so well. Yeah. I, something I have learned from talking to you is that I can't just ring someone up when the next station comes up for sale and be like, Oh yeah, cool. Can I come have a look? Like it's not like an open house. Oh, in that's town. right. Yeah. yeah. We <laughs> definitely wrap them up. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really proud of that because I, I've heard of some horror stories of just some absolute tire kickers going and parking themselves on a property for a while. And I just think, how did they get past the gatekeeper? Like this is, you know, 
that as the saying goes, we're not selling sheep stations. Like we're selling a pretty massive asset and we want to know that you're the real deal before you even set foot on that place. That's, it's just so cool. Like I just love how, I know I keep saying this, but full circle, you've come and it's kind of brought everything together and you've had all these other experiences along the way and it's just all come together to put you where you are now. The yeah, other, I guess I've, I've been lucky. Um, well, probably not lucky. I mean, I've worked hard to, 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 to be in that position and to obtain that level of trust from people to go, yes, we're happy to put it in your hands. But I also work massive hours to make sure I, I don't leave any stone unturned either. All right, I'm going to let you go shortly, don't worry, because we do have a barbecue to get to downstairs. <laughs> I invited you over with the pretense of a barbecue. And I'm it not was le- a trap. <laughs> and I'm not letting you eat until you've given me a podcast. But I guess aside from the fact that you've gone from dealing with your obviously smaller size, like physically sized blocks of land and, and buildings and smaller price tags – um, to these astronomical, you know, tens of millions or I don't even want, yeah, how much, like gazillion dollar sales. They're, when when something is sold, it's pretty big news. So now uh, you're kind of in the spotlight. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely outrunning the media. Uh, it's, it's a really hard thing to control. And and even, even recently I had, um, I think my comment was, I really can't make any comments. I'd already had all the facts, but then an article was written where, you know, that had all the facts and then they quoted me on other stuff. So, you know, it's just, I guess you try and steer it as best you can, but it's, it's a, a bit of a runaway horse. Yeah. I guess that's where your relationship with your client comes in though, that if we somebody's have a bit of a strategy, yeah, yeah, we do talk about it and say, how do you, I, I always ask how they want me to handle it or what they want said. So at least we have some input. If we can. Yeah. But if you've, like you said with that story, you said no comment more or less, and then they still kind of got comments from somewhere else and attributed them to you, at least with that level of of the relationship you've got with your clients that you can go to them and say, I didn't actually say, just heads up, like that's That's right. Else. And if and you they, always get instructions, they, absolutely. And they know, you know, they've already got that relationship with you to, I guess, believe you when that happens. That's right. And it's, it's big news and, and it's exciting news for a lot of people. So they, they do want to get it out there, but it's, yeah, my clients are always first and it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a frustrating thing to, to control, but it, it is what it is, I guess. And, and it's, it's their, their private, you know, their private sale and their private information and, um, even actually, I want to go back to we we're talking about neutral junction. Probably my first opportunity, and I just I'll always be so grateful. Was Roy and Janet Chisholm um, got me to list Ulu and the Territory Great Farm, and that was sort of my first kind of um, agricultural sale, and that really gave me a foot in the door. It was a substantial, you know, um, sale, and and you know, it was a, it was my first sort of dealing with the media. But that I I had no idea half the stuff that they said about Roy and Janet even, and until I'd read the article, and I just was like, I'm so sorry. But then the, the journalist said, Well, this is all the information online. You're dealing with high profile people, and um, everything I've put in this article is online. Yeah, that's so be- you can't control that. Is this the plan? I guess going forward. I mean, you still today sell houses and rural blocks. You've got stations. That's a, that's a feather to your cap now. Stations, if you could sell, just focus on one thing, would it be stations? Oh, I like having the variety. And, and I, 
and I know it sounds it sounds so cliche when people say it's just the it's just a few extra zeros on the end, but every sale is a really important transition for a lot of people. And it's really nice to be a part of that process. And I've met some absolutely beautiful people. Like a lot of, a lot of my clients are, are still friends of mine from Cairns days or Tassie days or, um, you know, and even in Catherine, like it's, you're helping them through something that they probably have done once or twice in their life. It's a very stressful time. And to have someone that can help them through it, it's, it's a really rewarding process. So I love selling the stations. It's very interesting, but I also love helping people in town too. I can vouch for that fully because even though I didn't buy my house through you because the market is, you know, yeah, it, you, it depends on the house you want to buy. Exactly. I, I bought on the house, not on the agent, but you basically held my hand through a lot of it and talked me through it and you weren't even the one selling it. You even, when I was looking, when I first came looking for houses in town or and out of town, you even suggested some that you weren't weren't listing because you just wanted to help me find the right house for me. Like it wasn't even yeah, about Yeah, well, like- it's, I guess it's a, a job that's problem solving or, or not even problem solving. It's just matching it up. And I, yeah, I, I love matching gonna, people up. Like you were helping me and there's no way you would have made a commission out of that or anything. And I just remember thinking like, is this girl for real? Like, because then the person, the agents I were dealing with and they were going to be getting a, con- a commission from me and they did couldn't give me the time of day. So I was like, how is this is so backwards? This is just yeah. I guess I and and it's going back to some of the the awesome influences of my life, like Kyle Borden, be the friendliest person in the room, loudest person's the weakest and the quietest is the one to watch out for. Or even Kev Toomey used to always say, give without asking for anything back. And it's like it's just about being a good human being. And that you so, are. All right, it's barbecue time. Oh, I'm so hungry. But you know from listening to the podcast that no one ever gets away without answering my final question. So, Olivia, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? I okay, I live by this saying. It's it sounds so corny, but someone said it's me in my early twenties, and it's all things come to those who wait, but only what's left behind by the hustlers. And I've heard you say this in plenty of of your podcasts about hustle and have the hustle, but also be the person who gives without asking for something on, in return. 